Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Paul Newton, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Oh, it's awesome to have you here. And you are here clear from Australia. And uh, I have to tell the audience that originally when we planned this, somehow you and I could not get the numbers right. And you were going to be doing this at 2 a.m. So <laughs> I'm grateful we got that worked out. <laughs> it's what, like 10 a.m. your time now? Yeah, about quarter past 10 yeah, in the morning. Yeah, and it's after... And, and what time is it for you then? 6, 6, 15. Yeah, p.m. Oh, okay. It's so crazy. I was thinking about this before the interview mm. that, I don't know, like when I was in college and even maybe 10 years ago, to call Australia for free would mm. have been a miracle, but to actually see you, yeah. it's just mind-blowing. It's such a cool thing mm. that you're it is, that isn't far it? away. It, yeah. it remind, reminds me of the Jetsons. I know. You know the, Seriously. The video phone. Yeah, and we're probably about the same age, I would assume, you in your 40s. Yeah. Uh, well, it's very kind of you to say that. but uh, Okay, you're a little older. A little bit older. <laughs> a little okay. older. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about then. This is wild. It's great, to, oh, yeah. it's great to be able to talk to you clear in Australia. So I'm really glad you're on the show. Oh, thanks, Jeff. No, it's, it's my honor. And uh, also, um, it was great to meet you for the first time at the Porch Society. I have to congratulate you again for that award of the Draper Prize, which is, for those who don't know, the biggest prize that you can win at the Porch Society of America. And you made out like a bandit because not only did you win 50 grand, but apparently the exchange rate brought it up to like 75. Is that right? Mm. Um, yeah, at the moment, the exchange rate with the Australian dollar meant that it was, it was about 70, 73. That's K, which was fantastic. And awesome. It was insane. Yeah. yeah I, know, I know. Sadly, text comes out of that, but. Yeah. Sort of yeah. It brings you right back down to 50, maybe. I don't know, but at least. Oh, pretty much. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. I'm not complaining. It was a, it was a great honor. And honestly, it was, it was the last thing I expected when I went to the Portrait Society uh, conference this year, and I heard that I was a finalist. There were three and a half, oh, sorry, yeah, three and a half thousand approximately, three and a half thousand from which they chose 20 finalists. So when I heard that I was a finalist, I, I was absolutely wrapped. So when the night progressed and they announced each of the stages of um, the place getters and various award recipients, I, I thought for sure I'm going to be down at the bottom end of that uh, 20, but to have won it was just mind-blowing so tell me how that felt and because i've been there i've never won the draper closest i've been is mm. second place and mm. uh and i remember every single time i'm a finalist it's like when they read the names they do it in alphabetical order and you're just mm. waiting as they get as they approach the, for me h for you n and then they pass mm. up your letter and you're like oh my and the anxiety of that is like maybe it's just me but were you feeling oh, no. that pressure as you're getting closer to n and wondering if they're going to mm. call you next mm. Mm. 
The whole time you're hoping that your name is not going to be next because if it is, then you're out. You know, you've, you've got something, but then you're out. Right. You've, you've, won one of you, the, you've, you've won one of the, uh, you might call it like a, a honorable mention type of an award, correct. right? Instead That's of right. one of the top five awards. Yeah. That's right. So they go through all those various subcategories. Then they get to the place getters. I think it's maybe fifth place down to first place. And first place is in three categories now. So it's for drawing, as you know, drawing, sculpture, and painting. And, and painting is the, is the last one that they mentioned, I guess probably because there are more painters than there are sculptors and, and draft people. Uh, and I thought when it got to that stage, I thought, well, I guess I'm going to get first place in painting. And, I, and it didn't happen. They didn't announce my name. And, I, and everybody at my table and, and a table adjacent to me, uh, we knew what that meant. Everybody was looking at me and I, yeah. I was just in shock. I bet. And so when I got up, it was like I was walking in a, I don't know, sleepwalking or something. It didn't feel real. And then Shane said, you know, say a few words. And I had nothing prepared. I didn't expect this to happen. So I don't even know what I said. I was in autopilot and then I just, you know, hugged Kim um, and then walked back to my table, still in shock. Yeah, it was really. But it, it was a wonderful, really cool. a wonderful shock to be in. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and well deserved. It was a beautiful self-portrait that you had done. And but you were well, a great company, though. I mean, it, every time oh, yeah. they have that show, I'm mind blown because we're in Washington D.C. and you can go to the museums in Washington D.C. and see good art. But frankly, mm. I'm always a little bit sort of underwhelmed after having come from the Portrait Society contest mm -hmm. when i go to these these big time museums I'm, I'm like well i just saw 20 great paintings it's like eh, mm. you know these are good but i just saw some pretty amazing stuff so you're in really good company yeah. well thank you in fact that i was very aware of that as well so when i saw the other finalists when i was hanging my work in the um uh, in in the room where the, the paintings were on display some of them, particularly two or three, were so good. I just felt it was an honour to be among them. And it just highlighted in my own mind that I had no chance of being the ultimate winner because the competition was so strong. Um, and I, even at the end of it, I remember thinking, you know, mine was the best portrait there. I mean, maybe I'm, you, I'm not you, in a position You can't be objective. You can't be objective because it's you. No, you, you, that's true. That's true. I, and look... I, as I say, it was a great honour, and but it was genuinely unexpected. There were some pieces there that I just thought were fabulous. But I guess perhaps what may have resonated with people um, was the the, the lockdown uh, theme, because in Australia we had a particularly uh, protracted and intense lockdown. I think perhaps the, the most um, intense and, and longest lockdown of anywhere in the world. It went on for, you know, in one part of Australia, in the south, in Victoria, it went on for nine months straight. I mean, that's extraordinary. Well, and, describe and, that. What you, do you mean by nine months? At nine months, we can't leave your home? Correct. So, well, you, you've got the limitation is you can't leave a radius of five kilometres, which is about three and a half miles from your, house, from your home. Um, there are various exemptions for that if you're going to get... Um, for a medical appointment or something of that sort. But in the normal course of events, you're isolated. So if you don't have 
friends or family in that five kilometre radius. You just don't get to see them. I mean, I can see why Zoom was such a, uh, a successful app during that period because people were relying on it. I was catching up with friends and family via Zoom uh, when there was a group of us there with my, my family. Um, it was a, really, when you think about it, it was just such an unnatural state of affairs. I mean, I, I guess they were scrambling to try and figure out a way of dealing with this unprecedented, um, uh, you know, the, the virus. That we, this sort of thing hadn't happened, I guess, for a hundred years. So it was difficult for them to know what to do. And, and I suppose it's easy in retrospect to, to judge whether that was a successful or the right thing to do. But nonetheless, at the time, it was pretty, uh, pretty challenging. Yeah, and that goes into the concept. So I want to pull your portrait up. Is it on your website or is it only on your Instagram? Uh, I think it's only on my Instagram. All I right, haven't updated I'm, it with gonna, for so long. I'm pulling that up right now. So this is the portrait. I mean, it's got obviously logos and stuff on it. But tell yeah. tell us about the concept because I know it has something to do with the lockdown. Yeah, it was during the winter. His, I'm wearing a, a jumper there. Although, you know, the funny thing is it's winter in, in Australia right here and now, and it's it's balmy. I think people in America would find it hard to believe that uh, this could be winter anywhere. It's um, so mild. But anyway, I was, um, the idea was I was painting, so I've got in my um, right hand a brush, my left hand up to my chin. As you probably notice, I often do this. It's, it just seems to be a natural mannerism. And... I've done quite a, a number of self-portraits over the years, partly because the subject is always available um, and it means I can work from life as well as from uh, photographs if I take photographs of myself or, you know, uh, whoever it might happen to be. <clears throat> but in the case of a self-portrait, um, I've got, as you can also see, very pale skin. So it was what I did is set up uh, two mirrors so that the first mirror uh, reflected into the second and then turned my, uh, the view of myself back to the view that a third party would have of me. And then I, prior to that, I'd taken photographs of particularly of my face with my eyes downcast so that I could get that particular gesture. And from that, that point on, I was looking in the mirror and just really feeling that, uh, as I say, that sense of isolation, you know, the, I was there in front of the mirror with my paints and, and my son was down the, the corridor in his room. But apart from that, it was total isolation. So it, as an artist, you do spend a hell of a lot of time in your own company. And I guess you, if you're not able to deal with that, then it's probably the wrong profession to have. But at the same time, when it's enforced upon you, it's uh, it's a different dynamic. Yeah. I tell you what, that's the reason I teach because I'm not – one of those people that can be alone. When oh. I come in on Saturdays, because my studio's open to my students Monday through mm. Sunday, but sometimes people, my students are a little lazier on the weekends. So I'll mm. come in on Saturdays and it's quiet here and I can't stand it. And I often yeah. think, I don't know what I would do if I was alone day in and day yeah. out. It takes a, it takes a certain type of person to be able to handle that. And then you put COVID yeah. on top of that and it's like, what? Yeah. Oh man. It's rough. Yeah. It's yeah. Rough. That was a perfect storm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. One of the things I, I enjoy about giving workshops and that type of thing, teaching, not that I do it a lot, but when I do, I do really enjoy it because not only when you express 
to others um, the concepts that you uh, believe that you understand. In doing so, it actually crystallizes your own thoughts and you actually come mm -hmm. to a, a deeper understanding of, of what those ideas that you have are. But also, as you say, it's, it's a wonderful socializing opportunity. And as artists, um, it's not, doesn't always happen. That's also one of the reasons I enjoy portraiture as opposed to uh, other genres because it, it's a social activity by definition. So if, I, if I'm working with a, a client, a subject that I'm painting, um, it, it's so nice to have that person in your own company so that, you know, you're there together working on this collaboratively in a sense, working, although their position is a little more passive, um, working collaboratively on this project to produce the result that hopefully everybody will be happy with, but it's a, it's a kind of a group effort. So how much of your time is spent then with clients versus using photography in your portrait commissions? Um, what I try to do for, for a portrait commission, the way I would start out is by meeting with the client, talking to them about what they're hoping to achieve in the portrait. Um, then usually the first stage of reference gathering is to photograph them in a whole range of different poses with different backdrops and all of the different variations that I can uh, think of. And then um, get back to them with those photos, show them how I'm seeing them, get a sense of what they like or dislike in terms of that, um, the way they come across. And then when they have time, sometimes they don't, if it's a particularly busy person uh, or if they're not particularly interested in the process, they may decline. But usually what I try to do is at least have a couple of hours where I sit down and paint them, just, just a, a quick sketch, an oil sketch uh, from life. And, and really the function of that for me is not to come up with any kind of a beautiful sketch, but rather it forces me to observe the subject in a way that I may not um, uh, otherwise do. I mean, I, I suppose even just having photographs, which obviously is the case in, in, in the, um, if the project is, is a posthumous portrait, um, it can still work, but it's always better to, to have spent some time working from life, I, I find. The end result does, it does make a difference. So it, and it's particularly in the case of that self-portrait uh, relevant because I had as much time as I wanted. There was no limit, obviously, to how much time I could devote to having me there for the, for the, for the, like a life sitting, so to speak. Um, and, and when I was at art school, that was the only way we painted for many years. I, after that time, I didn't own a camera. Uh, and it was a real luxury item that, um, at the time, I just simply couldn't afford. Now, I know you can do so much with an iPhone. It's, uh, it's a different world. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good segue. Let's go back a little bit and talk about your past. How did you get started in painting? So when I was a young child, Jeff, my greatest joy was to sit up in bed at night and to draw. So I'd go to bed early and spend hours doing that. My parents were very happy with me doing that because I'd, I would go to bed, unlike my siblings who had to be uh, jostled and cajoled into, uh, into doing that. Uh, but then through my school years, in, in the latter part of uh, my school education, high school, um, I went to a boys' school and, you know, you could major in football, but 
the humanities were fairly low on the list of priorities. So needless to say, I didn't have an opportunity to um, pursue visual art or anything of that sort. And, and then when I finished school, having done mostly sciences and, and those sorts of subjects, I then went on and, and studied science at university with majors in pure maths and physics. And after I'd done, I, I didn't really know why I was doing it, but I thought if, I, I've got to do something rather than nothing. I had no idea hmm. what I, I was going to do as a vocation with my life. Um, but I'd always loved music. And so I decided to pursue that with some friends who were also musicians. In fact, most of my friends at that stage were musicians. And uh, I remember being in a pub in Sydney uh, and I said, and it was a it was a Saturday night, and it was full of people. And I saw a guy, the musician for that night, walking in with his gear, his guitars and amplifiers and things. And he was being jostled by these uh, the crowd of patrons, and he really wasn't having a good time. And he was an old bloke; he must have been at least forty, which, when I was in my twenties, seemed like um, you know he was ready to <laughs> retire. So I. I could see that that was the direction I was taking if I continued down that path, which I clearly wasn't uh, enamoured of doing at that stage. So uh, I, shortly after that, I was talking to a mate of mine over a couple of drinks who at the time was studying at Julian Ashton's art school in Sydney, also in, in the old part of Sydney, incidentally. Um, and he said, look, you ought to consider coming to art school. It's uh, it's you know, it's a great social life. There's lots of pretty girls. <laughs> um, he went he went through a whole list of this, whole list of things that yeah. And, and at the very bottom of the list, he said, "Oh, and you can learn to draw and paint." What the By heck? that stage, I was ready to sign up. So the next that was the weekend. On the Monday following, I went into uh, the art school and. When I opened the door, this was a very classical, very traditional art school. Not not unlike the Art Student League, Art Students League in New York City. It has that, it, it, it kind of, um, the atmosphere is saturated with tens of years, if not, well, actually maybe close to 100 years in the case of uh, Julian Ashton's, of, of artists having been there, the smell of gum turps wafting through the air, um, all these eccentric characters, these these art students and, and, and the teachers who are perhaps even more eccentric, uh, flayed figures, skeletons, skulls, still life arrangements. It, it was this bizarre uh, um, other world that I never experienced having come from a, a kind of academic background. And, and even though I'd been involved with music, it was just so, such a foreign environment. But the strange thing was, Jeff, when I walked through that door and I observed all of this and smelt the gum turps in the air and the oil paint and everything else, I breathed a sigh of relief and I felt like finally I'd come to a place where I belong. It was like a homecoming. Really? Um, it, it was really an epiphany for me. I just have to take a minute to thank each one of my generous patrons for your part in keeping this podcast going. I could not continue to do it without you, so thank you so much. If you're not a patron yet, but you love the show and you listen regularly, please consider becoming a patron. It's really easy to do and it doesn't have to break the bank. Just head over to theundrapedartist.com and click on the link, Be My Patron on Podbean. And then choose a monthly donation amount that fits your budget. It's that simple. 
and to thank you for your generous donations. Once you've reached $100 in total contributions, send me an email to theundrapedartist at gmail.com and I will send you one of our spectacular undraped artist aprons. This is, I have never heard a story like this. I mean, you're probably episode 55, I think. Mm. And uh, this has got to be the most unique one I've heard. For you, it's like, I have a friend that tells me I should try art school because the pretty girls are there. So mm. I did. I mean, that's mm. like, mm. I mean, did you, did you even know you had talent before that? I mean, I know you drew as a kid, but did you I, see aptitude in yourself as a child? As a child, I did. Um, and, and my teachers and adults around me um, would applaud what I did. So I, I guess I, when I was going through my life beyond being a young child, I always in my heart of hearts felt that deep down I did have an ability in that field that I'd never had a chance to explore that to see whether in fact that was true or not, or whether that was just a, you know, a childhood um, memory. And so it never occurred I, I really to you, didn't know. it never occurred to you as a child that maybe I would be an artist. And it's so until this moment, not not really i mean it was wow. a, it was a bit of a fantasy when i was very young that you know i would be an artist you know in fact there was i remember when i was a kid my mum and her family uh, her side of the family yeah used to talk about uncle leo now uncle leo was supposedly this great artist from their family in a past generation he'd long gone by the stage i was around but they were telling me about him and they used to say you obviously get your talent, Paul, from Uncle Leo. That's how it's come through the generations. And so I had this idea of this uh, this relative who was um, an amazing artist, and, and I, I kind of uh, was quite um, impressed by that. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, if, if Uncle Leo was good, maybe I, I could be good as well. Anyway, we were cleaning up the garage one time, and uh, in an old box, my mother found a picture a painting a watercolor painting of a of a boat a yacht on the water which uncle with leo's name in the corner uncle leo had painted this and she showed it to me with a great sense of uh expectation and i looked at it and even as a young child i could tell it was rubbish he was hopeless <laughs> no so you did have an eye for it you had way back then I, I guess, I guess so. Although that really crushed my illusions that any ability I might might have had stemmed from, uh, so, from Uncle Leo. The the DNA came from a few generations back beyond beyond Uncle Leo. Okay, so I won't Google Uncle Leo this evening to find out what kind of work he's doing. <laughs> okay, so you end up in art school, and then what? Well, despite that wonderful moment of inspiration and um, revelation in the sense that I, 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 I felt like here's somewhere I finally belong and somewhere that I could become um, comfortable working and, and, and learning that sort of environment. Uh, it was actually then three or four years of, of really hard work and it was a struggle because I, I had no previous um, education of any, of any substance in visual art. So I was really learning from, from scratch everything that I was learning. 
I remember one of the teachers one time saying to me, uh, so is yellow a warm color or a cool color? And I just had no idea. I didn't even know what it meant. I, the mm -hmm. concept of warm and cool was such a, uh, a foreign concept to me. What I actually found was really helpful and helped me to move reasonably quickly through the stages of, of learning uh, was my experience as a musician because there are so many analogies or analogous concepts uh, between those two subjects. For example, you talk about when you're in a band, um, you're wanting to allow space for the sound, other, other musicians to be able to, to fill, but you want overall the dynamic to be not cluttered and not overworked and not, well, I'm using a visual art term there, overworked, not too busy, not too cluttered. And so as soon as I, I thought of music, I could then understand that concept as it related to visual art. The same with rhythm, you know, you've got rhythm in brush strokes, and of course in music, rhythm's a very obvious concept. Colour maybe not quite as uh, as obvious in, in music, but you you get a sense of it. Um, composition, uh, there are so many analogous concepts. And, and yeah. so because I had a, a pretty good understanding of music by that stage, that really helped to push me along. So um, within about three years, I, I was painting pretty well, uh, not brilliantly, but, you know, I, I, I moved fairly uh, quickly through that, those stages. I then went along to study with a tonalist artist named Graham Inson, who at the time uh, it was an old man and has links, long since passed. He had studied, <clears throat> excuse me, he'd studied when he was a, a younger man with a bloke named Max Meldrum. And the reason I mention those names is that Max Meldrum uh, had been in Paris where he'd been studying around the time that Whistler and Monet and Sargent wow. and all of those greats who we uh, revere now were, were up and running and, and, and painting. So the technique that, um, that Max Meldrum brought back from Paris to Australia and then passed on to his students, including Graham, who taught me, was, was one that is very much akin to the way anecdotes of how Sargent painted uh, was that was that was the method. So the way we were taught to paint was to mark a spot on the floor uh, four or five paces back from your artwork. You would have your artwork, um, for example, at my, in those early stages, it was a, a 10 by 8 or 11 by 12 canvas board, and you would have that set up on an easel directly beside a still life subject, Beethoven's death mask or something of that sort. I was just looking around to see if I could find an example. I, I, I've got a few of them sitting around here um, from from back in the 1980s when I was doing this. And so you would have – the way he, he started this off was to work in monochrome, just black and white, so that colour was removed from the equation entirely. And all you were looking at then were total values, or as Americans would say, values, and, uh, and the drawing, the proportions, the, the perspective and elements that are related to drawing. And he actually described the whole process, interestingly, as a – he didn't use the word trinity, but it was almost like that. You've got three separate elements that are all uh, infused in a way that they can never really be separated, but they're distinct uh, elements in their own right. And I often thought of it in those terms, the drawing, the colour, 
and the tonal values. And he used to say that tonal values are the one element that people will often miss, and they're the most difficult in a sense to to see spontaneously. But once you understand what they mean, it's really just the grayscale. If you were to take a photograph uh, or, or on a computer these days, remove the color and see the whole thing in black and white, the grayscale are really great. The, the elements of the grayscale are really what are meant by tonal values. Um, and well, what about, what about things... drawing? Are you referring, when you say drawing, are you referring to proportion? Yeah. Okay. Yes, because in this method that he taught us, ironically, there was no preliminary drawing. You right. would launch straight into paint. So, I'm sorry, I got sidetracked there. The way you would start is you would step back four or five meters, or four, four or five paces, probably about three or four meters from where your canvas and subject were. And they were therefore the same distance from you at view, your viewing spot. And that viewing spot is where you would look at your subject and look at your canvas and determine what was the biggest difference between the two. Obviously to start with the biggest difference was you've got a white blank canvas and then a, a subject. Um, and, and he made it easier for us to, to work mon in a monochrome fashion by having the, the walls painted gray and in the case of a Beethoven death mask, it was a white plaster cast against a gray wall. So effectively the subject was mono, in monochrome as well. So um, you would then step back to your viewing point, determine what is the biggest difference, and then you would walk up to, this, to your canvas with an intention in mind that you decided from your viewing spot uh, as to what you were going to do. You wouldn't look at the subject as you approached it because if you think about it, a three-dimensional subject will shift because your right. angle your perspective um, with respect to it has changed. Exactly. So you would then uh, scumble in in a very loose, rough fashion, uh, a separation between the darks and the lights, and nothing more than that, nothing more elaborate than that. <clears throat> and then you would walk back to your spot and judge whether or not what you've just done was successful. Okay, are it, you describing sight size? Yeah. Okay, but Sargent would do figures that were like 10 heads tall. So was he really sight sizing in that same manner? Um, 10 heads tall? Oh, some of his like, figures. You know, yeah, some of his figures were um, very, yeah, well, maybe not 10, maybe eight or nine heads tall, but just mm -hmm. not, not naturally proportioned, more, more uh, idealized his figures. So oh, just, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so sight so, size wouldn't work in those situations, I would assume. Well, the way you, th this is the very beginning of, of, of the, of the, um, of the way you would learn this approach to painting. Right. Okay. Uh, and as you went on, you would, it would become a slightly more elaborate, more sophisticated process. So, okay, for instance, okay. Uh, initially, it was sight size, as we were saying, and th and that really was the best way to learn, uh, I think, to, to learn to paint from life. Um, but then you would add colour. Uh, then you might do something, for example, where you're painting uh, a subject maybe half the size that it actually is by moving your canvas closer to you um, and having the subject further back, or vice versa. Or, or what I would sometimes do is have... Uh, if I wanted to paint something very large, for example, I, I remember painting a, a figure of a, uh, of just a head of a of a, um, of a woman, 
and this particular project required me to paint it very much larger than life, probably about uh, two or three, probably about three foot high from, from uh, you know, top to chin. Mm. And the way I did that was I had two mirrors set up. I had um, a, um, let me try and think how I did this now. I had my canvas in the mirror. So what I was looking at wasn't the canvas, but rather a reflection of it through these two mirrors. So it was way, way smaller. And then I had a small, uh, almost postcard size reference uh, source. So I, I used that two-dimensional photographic reference source and then used this method of seeing my canvas shrunk way down to paint effectively site size. What? But in fact, That's I was, elaborate. It, was, it was wild because I'd put my hand toward the canvas and I was looking at the mirror the double reflection and it took me a while to get a sense of where I was actually putting the, um, the paintbrush because it was so dislocated from what I was actually seeing. That's bizarre. So, yeah, that, that take, Did you do this in art school or is this something you've done since art school? Uh, well, my study with Graham was separate to my right. study at Julian Ashton's art school. That's what I meant, with your study with him, right. Uh, yeah, well, some of the things I did were with him, uh, but then I kind of expanded on that. And even these days, I do use that method. So I'm always stepping back and forward from my painting, and I, I try as much as I can to paint from a distance. But I, um, the way he taught the technique was almost dogmatic. It was almost like a, a religious dogma. You've got to um, work with these methods uh, without any kind of uh, change to them. Whereas I, I took on board what he taught, but then made it my own. So it was like, you know, someone said it's like eating fish. You eat the flesh and spit out the bones. So right, right. I, not that I rejected anything in that method, but it's just that I changed it and, and I've done my own thing. And I, if you were to look at a painting that I've, I've done compared with a painting that Graham did, they're, they're quite different because of his different approach. Right. Okay, so about um, your ages, I'm curious of what your age was during school, um, when you were studying science versus when you were in art school versus when you were with, uh, I'm sorry, his name again, what was his Gr name? Graham, Graham, Graham Inson. Right, versus when you were with Graham Inson. What were your mm. ages at those times? Um, gee, good question. Well, I finished high school, I think I was probably about 17 or 18. Then I was at university for three and a half years. So I guess I was in my early 20s. I was then working as a uh, as a musician for um, probably five or six, maybe four or five years. I remember I was at art school when I was in my early to mid 20s. Uh, I was there for three and a half years as well. And, but also spent um, a year traveling around Europe, just looking at museums and um, cathedrals and, you know, castles, all the usual thing. But mm -hmm. it was, it was really part of the education because I spent so much time in, in art museums and probably for the first time in my life, because coming from Australia, you don't get to see a lot of those great masterworks from, from the past. So it was my first opportunity to really see a lot of those, you know, in England and in, in Paris and particularly in, in, um, in Madrid, the Prado in Madrid, seeing the work of Velasquez uh, was mind-blowing, you know, Las Meninas and 
his other masterworks. It was no surprise that everybody from Francis Bacon to Picasso to Sargent would take pilgrimages in their student years to the Prado to, to copy uh, Velázquez. Well, I can never pronounce his name. I, I know the, the Spanish would, would say Velázquez, but I just can't bring myself to say that. Yeah, I'm sure I would say it wrong too, so I'm not going to help you out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then uh, and then when did you start your professional career, and how did that transition take place? Okay, so there was a guy who was a fellow student at art school who was telling me about illustration as a as a genre, and his dad at the time was working as an art director for one of the big advertising agencies in Sydney, and um, he was talking about how when he finished. At Ashton's, he was going to go on and be a uh, an art director. So this again was entirely foreign to me. I had no idea about illustration, art direction, anything like that. I mean, I'd seen illustrations, of course. I'd seen movie posters and I'd seen cornflakes packets, but I, I hadn't put the puzzle together and realised that people actually do that work. Um, so I actually then got involved with with commercial artwork and illustration really as a way to put my skills into practice and to try and make some money and make a living in what was otherwise a very precarious um, and has always remained a very precarious way to make a living. Uh, I, it, it was it was during that, that time, and I was doing that for about probably um, eight or nine years, it was during that time that I became... Well, actually, sorry, let me start again. Before that, while I was at Ashton's, I became aware of an art competition in Australia that's been running, uh, recently had its 100th year anniversary, the Archibald Prize for Portraiture. And as art students at, at art school, we were all aware of it. One of our teachers actually had won the Archibald back in the late 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, so we were aware of it uh, in that sense indirectly. And most of us, including me, would submit entries for the competition. I, I remember I put a self-portrait in that I'd painted at art school, which, of course, didn't get hung. It was sent back to me and, you know, I was disappointed and thought, well, I'll never paint anything. I'll never enter anything into that again. So when I was working as a, as a commercial artist, as an illustrator, I remember thinking a few times when I had a little bit of spare time, I might submit another entry for the Archibald. So I painted a portrait of our former prime minister, former um, effectively the head of state, not literally, but effectively, uh, a guy named Bob Hawke, who was a larger-than-life character. And I painted him um, with a bright red background, which somehow seemed to suggest to me the, the kind of very theatrical uh, uh, persona that he projected during his time as, as off, in office as prime minister. Um, and it, it got a lot of media coverage, I guess, because of the subject matter. But uh, again, it wasn't selected as a finalist. So it took a, a number of years. So again, I, I put the idea on hold and I thought, well, I'm not going to waste my time doing that again. But then a, a few years would pass and I think, well, you know, I, I might have one more go at it. Anyway, eventually after doing that for year after year, I did get something finally hung in the Archibald. And uh, it's hard to over, overstate how big an event in Australia the Archibald Prize is. It's really an iconic event that captures the imagination of the public. It's front page news. It's the, the top item uh, on the TV news at night when 
the winner of the Archibald is announced. Wow. Um, so it's, it's really, it's really big in Sydney, particularly, but in the nation more generally, but particularly in Sydney, because it's, it's been running for so long and, it, and it's always controversial. And the subjects that are painted for the Archibald almost invariably will be someone who's in the public eye. And that's really part of the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the entry requirements or at least recommendations and controversial because the the trustees of the of the art gallery who are the judges of the archibald would almost invariably choose a painting that they knew that the, the general public wouldn't like huh. you think they did it on purpose they wanted oh yeah entirely in fact i remember the the director one time was asked the director of the art gallery was asked who was not one of the judges incidentally but he oversaw the whole process of course was asked by a very uh, clever, or th thought he was clever, journalist, uh, Mr. Capon, as the Edmund Capon was his name, is it the best painting that wins the Archibald? And Edmund Capon, quick as a whip, said, oh, my goodness, no, I don't know what whatever gave you that idea. Certainly not the best painting. And, of course, that was true because it, it wasn't the best painting. And, and oftentimes what they introduced at one stage some years ago now was a people's choice uh, competition within the Archibald. So the Archibald is kind of like an old ship having ga uh, gathered all these barnacles over the years, one of which is the, the people's choice. And seldom, if ever, does the people's choice award uh, winner match the Archibald prize winner for that very reason. Uh, wow. and, and that's continued through the, through the years. What do you think the motivation is? Is it just to get attention? Is it is it to... Yeah. That's it. So I, I think so because um, the, the Archibald Prize exhibition for the New South Wales Art Gallery, which is where it's hosted, uh, is the biggest uh, blockbuster, blockbuster exhibition annually that they would have. Oh, sorry, blockbuster is probably the wrong word. When, when they bring in a blockbuster exhibition, say of, of uh, the Impressionists or um, the works of uh, the Pre-Raphaelites or whatever it might be, some international exhibition that they host there and they would publicize it um, in the media and it would get a, a good number of um, of people attending, you know, coming in to, to, to view the exhibition. But the Archibald always outclasses, outnumbers the um, any other exhibition. So I guess it's in their interest to make sure that they get lots of people coming in to see it, to see the exhibition, and therefore if they can create controversy as to the judge's decision, uh, that only gets people talking and disagreeing violently with uh, what the judges have had to say, and um, and it gets people coming in. I guess it's as simple as that. But do does the general public in Australia understand what's happening? Do they actually know that the judges are just trying to stir up controversy, or do they believe <laughs> that the judges are actually genuinely attracted to these winners? Well, look, I guess I should, I should maybe modify my comments to the extent that there would be some work that the judges genuinely like, and, and therefore perhaps um, they may give the prize to that work because there is something of value in their estimation okay. in that work. But uh, maybe I'm cynical, but I, I can see that it's... Um, as Edmund Capon said, it's it's not the best painting that wins the Archibald. Seldom ever is that the case. 
In fact, there was a, a painting that won several years ago, which actually was a very good uh, painting by a, by a very uh, good Australian painter who paints in a rather classical way, one a man in which I personally very much appreciate. And he won the Archibald because he painted um, a, a, a fellow artist, a, a gentleman who had just turned 100. And this was to coincide with, or this year happened to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the Archibald. So I guess it was, mm. it was almost inevitable that they had to right. use that one. So they're just win. not interested in technique. They're interested in they're interested in no. publicity and some sort of a narrative that fits their current agenda. Pretty much. Okay. Well, and that's not unusual. I mean, isn't that what a lot of art contests are all about? You know, it's yeah. uh, and that's one of the reasons not to go clear back to the beginning here, but that's one of the reasons I appreciate the Portrait Society contest because it is absolutely mm. not that way. I mean, all contests are yeah. subjective. Let's face it. If they're mm. every year whether you win or not depends on who the judges are and their taste. But it's one thing yeah. to have varying tastes. It's another thing to have varying intentions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's interesting. So did you ever win um, the that prize or did you ever win the people's choice? I've, um, I mentioned before that the Archibald has attracted a number of side bars barnacles that have attached themselves to the ship over the years. One of them is the people's choice. Right. Another one is the packing room prize, which is um, the staff in the packing room who are basically the, the, the men and women who uh, move the paintings around, hang paintings, do the- They do choose the, one. They get to choose one. No that kidding. kind of happened by accident about uh, probably 15 years ago now. And it's um, it's remained as part of the this big picture. And the packing room prize is announced prior to the announcement of the Archibald proper, um, maybe a week or so in advance of the Archibald announcement. And so all the media are champing at the bit to uh, to report the winner of the Archibald. So when the packing room prize announcement is made, they'll jump on it because it's something to talk about in relation to the Archibald. Um, and so... I had the um, the honour of winning the packing room prize twice, or the dubious honour, I, I suppose, because if you win the packing room prize, uh, the uh, the talk on the street is if you win the packing room prize, then that's that's the, there's no way you'll go on to win the Archibald itself, because there's no way that the trustees would ever um, allow themselves to uh, align their decision with that of the uh, packing room staff. Oh, of course, at least not. that's they're, the they're far um, too sophisticated. popular wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh my God! What, what actually happened? What often does happen, though, or not always, but certainly in my case, it did happen. I ended a painting of a couple of Australian comedians. This is way, way back, around twenty years ago, um, who were well known at the time. Well, still are well known, but particularly well known at the time. And the Olympic Games was on in Sydney the year before this particular uh, year that I entered this portrait. And the comedians, Roy and HG, uh, had a big part to play in the uh, Olympic Games in Sydney uh, in that they um, they took the mickey out of what was an otherwise fairly serious event. Mm -hmm. um, and they were very, very, very popular. They were just, uh, they really captured the, the, the mood of the people at the time. So the next year I thought, 
and I had known one of the guys, John Doyle, whose uh, character name is uh, Roy, Roy Slavin. I had painted him previously, so I, I, I knew them and I approached them and happily they agreed to sit for me. So I entered that portrait of Roy and H.G., which then got the packing room prize. Then it, um, it, it went on to be in the top three or four in line for the Archibald. It didn't win the Archibald, but it was it was close. Um, and then it went on to win the pack, the uh, People's Choice Award in Sydney. And uh, um, and then later, because the Archibald now travels, that's yet another one of these things that's they've added to the to the um, to the to the event. It now travels around uh, certainly New South Wales, which is our state, the state which of which Sydney is the capital. And then further afield, uh, Victoria as well, where Melbourne, Melbourne, I nearly said Melbourne. Melbourne is the, um, is the capital. And so it won the, the People's Choice in Melbourne as well. So it wow, was congrats. extraordinarily. And just two years ago, um, or actually in 2020, so three years ago, it was, they, have, they had a, a, an exhibition that was to showcase and celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Archibald Prize. And they selected 100 works that had been either winners or entries in the Archibald over that 100-year period. Um, and so not many people, um, not many of uh, from, the, from the modern era were chosen, but they chose the portrait of Roy and H.G. So again, it's That's even amazing. still. That's amazing. Uh, Congrats. And it, the irony, uh, Jeff, is that it was a painting that when I painted it, I was actually quite unhappy with it for various technical reasons. And I had planned not to enter it, but a couple of friends of mine talked me into it. So I did. Um, obviously, I'm glad I did now, but yeah. I hadn't been going to. Well, maybe that's why I so got so far. So I guess so it far. just shows that you... If it was technically maybe, sound, maybe, it might not have won anything. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> I, get, I think it also goes to show that you, you are your own... Worst critic yeah. and probably the the, the least uh, person to know, you know how well you've you've done. It's true. We, yeah, we are for sure. You know, and that I was for anyone who's listening, you really need to visit your website to just see how many accolades you've had over the years. I mean, you've been very very successful. You are. I understand you're one of Australia's premier portrait painters, and. Uh, what and i mean you did something for the pope can you talk about that yep um back in 2008 i was um, commissioned by uh the catholic archdiocese of sydney to paint a series of works for actually initially just to paint one painting which was entitled our lady of the southern cross which was a, essentially a painting of the madonna and child mary with the baby jesus uh, but it was to have an Australian flavour, um, mm -hmm. and it was for an event that was called World Youth Day, where which is actually on at the moment, I think, in Port in Portugal, um, where the, the Pope would go to uh, some far flung location, such as Sydney, Australia, and uh, and be there present for an event where people would get together and and uh, pray and. Uh, you know, celebrate uh, things of that nature. So they, as part of that celebration, they commissioned me to paint this picture, which is now a permanent 
um, permanently in St. Mary's Cathedral. And so I, I, I got to meet uh, the then Pope, Pope Benedict, um, there. And later, after that, I was commissioned to paint a series. In fact, those two pictures you've got up there now, uh, a two of 32 paintings I was commissioned to paint for a chapel in Rome, uh, just next to the Vatican, um, where, again, I, I got to meet the Pope because he opened that chapel in 2011. Hmm. And uh, those, the... Um, some of those are, are quite large paintings, I think, you know, two and a half metres high. That one you've got up there at the moment is of uh, a nun named Mary McKillop. And the little boy and girl beside, she did a lot of work with uh, underprivileged kids and kids who were living on the street. Uh, so that was the narrative I was trying to uh, capture. So I got um, my niece and nephew, who were quite young at the time, to uh, to model for me. So I, I went to the costume high store and they'd love to get dressed up and. I photographed them in in those uh, positions in wearing those clothes. So I, I did that a lot with those those paintings. That probably half the time I spent working on the Domus project was uh, researching the uh, biographies of, of these various subjects who I was painting. And that one that you showed earlier, the group scene, um, was uh, it was yeah that that one yeah on the right there uh, was an historical event as opposed to individual portraits of an event that took place in 1818 in Sydney, where this small group of people would congregate and pray in a rather clandestine fashion because they weren't meant to be doing so. And anyway, long story, I won't, I won't bore you with that. But um, that particular scene, I roped in friends and family uh, to um, model those various subjects. So. It was quite a. It was a lot of fun, but it was it was a hell of a lot of work. Yeah, I think it took yeah. me about three or four months to paint that. Oh, is that all? That's actually quite fast, <laughs> man. That's pretty fast for all those figures. And about how big is it? Oh, it's uh, doesn't have any size here. I'm just looking to. Oh, it's not on the. It's actually if you click on that, I wonder whether it'll take you to an enlargement, which may be Oh yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it does. Just to your oh, and I can't. Right. Yeah, let's see, seventy-one by sixty-one. Okay, so about six right. by five feet. Yeah, it was it was fairly big, and if you on my website, there's a photograph of a sea of purple hats, all of these bishops and archbishops. Mm -hmm. And then a cardinal who's giving a talk, and then the Pope who's sitting down. And where, if you go, it's uh, if you look at the Domus Australia project, if you click on that, yeah. And then the first image that comes up, that one there. Okay. Yeah. That where, where the Pope is, right in the centre at the bottom, straight above that. If you look straight above that, that's oh, the painting. Yeah, yeah, that's the painting we're just looking at. What? And and here's your other painting. That's that's right. So what right an around honor to that, be in that building. Yeah. Wow. Really congrats. Was. That. Thank you. I'm, I'm really envious because I, <laughs> I, I don't know if you know, but I do biblical scenes. And it, I mean, to be mm. in a building like that, it just, you know, it harkens back to the Renaissance and all those old masters and those beautiful cathedrals. And yeah, it's just what a privilege. Congrats. It's so true. Do you know when I was that particular painting we we're just looking at? Um, I was very much inspired by the work of Caravaggio. And when I was in Rome, um, 
and I met with the Cardinal who had uh, commissioned me, well, ultimately would commission me at that stage, he, he hadn't. Um, and he, initially he'd asked me to do one painting, uh, another version of Our Lady of the Southern Cross for the chapel. And then he said to me, um, when I was in Rome, he, he took me to see these these works by Caravaggio, the the um, the uh, calling of St. Matthew, the inspiration of St. Matthew, and ultimately the execution of St. Matthew, so a, a kind of a potted history of, uh, of St. Matthew, painted as a triptych by Caravaggio. And uh, so the Cardinal said to me, um, what I'd really like you to do is to do uh, all 32 of these paintings. And initially I was kind of gobsmacked and shocked that he would even suggest that. And I said, I'm, I'm sure you, you know, you're not thinking about getting other artists to, to do some of these other ones. So that's not just one artist. And I heard these words coming out of my mouth. Yeah, what are and you, I thought to myself, what are you Paul, thinking? what are you doing? <laughs> and I, I immediately followed up by saying, but I'm sure you've thought through that. And I, I'm more than happy to, in fact, honoured to, uh, to undertake this commission. And I, I very much appreciate you offering it to me. So, yes, thank you. <laughs> and oh uh, he was gosh. gracious enough to to uh, to see my foible and and, uh, and 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 give me the commission. So it was it was a one it was it was a marathon. It took me probably six years to complete, um, but it was uh, it was an extraordinary privilege. And and that particular painting we we're just looking at before of the of the group uh, in that early prayer meeting mm -hmm. was um, for me modelled on the work of Caravaggio, albeit with a, a much softer light. Caravaggio would often have a very strong light, casting very definite, hard-edged shadows with a kind of a chiaroscuro effect, which I love and many people love. In the case of my picture, because the primary illumination was candlelight coming from the table uh, to the left of the picture, um, the light, the kind of golden light on their faces in the front of the of the figures, had to be much softer and much warmer. And then, if you actually that picture there shows one of the guys. Yeah, where me. is the original? Um, where is? Oh, it's in uh, here. It's in here. It's at the bottom. Okay, so we can... yeah, if you click on click on that, you'll go to the enlargement. Yeah. Okay, it's going to be cropped a little bit, but. Jeff, I can send you uh, JPEGs of, of any of these if you want me to. Okay, appreciate that. So, okay, so you're referring to the light on the figures from the candles that had to be softer. Correct. That's right. And if you notice the, the figure at the um, the front, the uh, the gentleman who's closest to us on the bottom right, if you look at the back side of his figure, you can see there's a kind of a blue cast. Yeah, uh, it looks and like wind, ambient the, window light, moonlight. Mm, which is exactly what I was trying to create. So the figure above him in the background, straight up above, you can see he's mostly just captured in that um, ambient light, so he's quite blue. And then the, the baby that the woman in to our upper left is holding, likewise, you can see that mm -hmm. uh, complementary uh, kind of yellow and, and blue colour. Which was just, I mean, it was a nice little thing to do because it not only did it make it visually a little bit more interesting, um, but hopefully it created more atmosphere um, in keeping with what I was trying to, to say in that picture. Yeah, you know, one thing I notice about it, and I notice this because I've done similar paintings where it's lit by candlelight or lantern or whatever. And I remember mm. the 
the process of setting up the scene and finding out that candles don't really light a lot of space. Right. Oh, indeed. No. So, I mean, so what you're doing here is taking a lot so of artistic I, license. I mean, this is lit by oh, yeah. artificial light and then you're throwing the candles in mm. there and exactly. trying to create, create the illusion it's being lit by the candles. Yeah. So what I actually did is uh, to, to, to take those reference photographs of these people was I had a very large um, uh, umbrella on a strobe light which flashed at full intensity when I pressed the shutter. Uh, and I used a, a fairly large and close up to the figures uh, light source so that it created a very soft effect, which I was hoping would imitate the effect that you would get um, with, with a candlelight. But, but you're absolutely right. It, it's way stronger than it would in fact be. And then what I also did, and, and this is just to make my life easier, I had some blue celluloid, uh, cellu uh, celluloid, cell, whatever, uh, which I put over another light in the uh, background. A gel, uh, a behind gel, blue the gel or something. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and then use that to um, as a to, as a shadow fill, um, but also to create that uh, change of color. Now, when you're photographing for a painting like this, do you try and get all the figures? into the position that they're going to be in the painting at once or do you just do you direct each figure at a time and then piece them together either in the painting or in photoshop or something so what i would what i used to do um when i first started uh, painting individuals or groups is i would draw the whole thing out literally on cartridge paper um, and then literally cut from imagination Oh, no, no, from, sorry, start again. From, I would take photographs of individuals oh, and, okay. and then try and place them together. But what what I would do these days, what I did in the case of that particular painting is I would, I would cluster small groups of people together. So, for example, uh, um, you can see there, well, you wouldn't know who it is, but it, it's the, the, the young boy in the front with his hands clasped in prayer is my son, who's never looked as pious since <laughs> or even before, um, who's playing the part of uh, that young boy. He's now 24, so you can you can tell how far back this was done. Yeah. Uh, and then the little girl uh, just immediately below him is my youngest daughter, who actually I used when she was a baby uh, as the, the model for baby Jesus with the um, that Our Lady of the Southern Cross painting. So Jessica's uh, appeared in, has been a model for me at different stages in quite a few paintings. So I would have had those two and probably the third little girl there is, um, or third child, the little girl is my niece, hmm. uh, Charlotte. So I might have had th those three together and then I might have had the guy in the, um, uh, in the foreground perhaps by himself. Uh, what I would have actually done is each individual I would have uh, photographed in a range of different gestures, poses, different angles, different positions, so that I had multiple choices for each uh, part of the composition. And then I was trying to create sub subplots or sub-narratives, if you like, within the picture so that it, it, it didn't just look like a group of people standing there right. or, or kneeling or whatever, but rather there was some kind of a, a story going on. 
So, for example, the young woman or young girl who's just to the centre right wearing that uh, white bonnet with a kind of reddish hair, mm-hmm. who is my older daughter, um, I've got her looking toward the baby. Um, actually, let me start that again. The young man in the, in the green on the far left, I've got him as if he's looking down at that girl mm-hmm. on, on your left, right over there. Oh, right side. here, right here. Okay. That guy, yeah. So he's he's looking toward the girl who we were just looking at a moment ago. Mm-hmm. She's looking either up at him or maybe she's looking at the baby. It's a little ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So I, I del- deliberately created little um, sto- stories, at least in my own mind, like that. Uh, for example, the, the guy at the very back on the far right, uh, who you can only just see coming through the, the door almost, I was kind of inspired, I suppose, by Norman Rockwell and the way he would uh, place figures in his compositions. So that was the mm. um, that was a priest who was essentially the art director on the whole Domus project, uh, a lovely guy named um, uh, Ch- uh, Charlie Patelli, Father Charlie Patelli. So I wanted a, a, to honour him by throwing him in, but he was very uh, shy about it. So I've got him in the, in the recesses of the shadows oh, there. Yeah. And then the guy immediately in front where your cursor is at the moment, um, I don't know whether it's visible there, but on his arm, is the broad arrow insignia of a convict. And in the early days of Sydney, during that period, there would have been convicts. And uh, these were people that were um, that were uh, convicted in England and given the, the dire uh, proclamation or the dire uh, sentence of transportation, which meant they were going to be transported to Australia. That was that was the most uh, severe punishment you were you could be given, I guess, short of, of execution. Uh, now, uh, of course, it's a different story. People <laughs> had to come here, but yeah, back then it was very different. So he was to represent that uh, part of the uh, socio-economic um, uh, landscape, I suppose, in in wow. early Sydney. Yeah, I I can really appreciate that. The, the the multiple narratives you got going on it really makes. Or a much more interesting painting because you move around the painting and and pick up these things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as far as the technique goes, technique meaning the or the preparation for the painting, are you placing the camera in a specific spot? You said you 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 photograph yeah. people in all these various positions, but are you fixing the camera mm-hmm. in one location so that you maintain a consistent perspective when you do that? Exactly, exactly correct. So, well, what I would do, that's one thing I was really aware of, because when you cut and paste and throw figures together from disparate sources, the the biggest issue is to try and create continuity where they do look like they're all there together in one scene. So, you know, the figure in front does cast a shadow on the figure behind them. Um, The angle, the perspective needs to match so that the uh, horizon line is the same for each of them. All of those things. So what I would do is I would photograph them. I, I, I held the camera by hand. So in, in that sense, the camera was moving all over the place. But I made sure that I was at the same height above the floor. So I was kneeling down um, so so that therefore the, the height of the, um, the angle of the top of the table and everybody else in the picture uh, would be uh, the same or close right, to the same. Right. Yeah, you're basically um, you're then, fixing your horizon line. 
Yes, exactly. And then within, and, and to me, that was the most important element uh, to, in terms of that continuity. The other thing I, I also often try to incorporate into my compositions is uh, the golden ratio because it's just a, it's a, it's a nice, visually pleasing position within a picture plane to place an element which is uh, which is um, you know given prominence. So I in this case, it. yeah, yeah, the I mean, you uh, can almost see the I spiral. Think... You can almost see a, a spiral here. Right. Right. Is that was you that your intention? Really... Am I going in the right way with yeah, my mouse? No, no, that, that's tr that's that's true. That 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 was part of it. The idea of, of your eyes brought around the composition, but not pushed out of it, so that you keep coming back right, and see right. more. But where the where there's a, a a picture on the wall on the above the, the the fireplace at the back. Yeah. Now, when I was reading. Uh, anecdotes about this event, because this was a particular historical event that took place. Um, they spoke about the uh, the home where this was uh, taking place, and it was in the Rocks in Sydney. And the Rocks is named, that's the, the old part of Sydney I mentioned earlier on. The Rocks is named because Sydney is basically built on a sandstone platform, and the um, uh, the buildings, many of the buildings in that old part of Sydney are made of sandstone, hence the name. So when I was reading about this story, I read about um, a, a lithographic print of St. Peter, they, you know, they, they called him the, uh, the fisherman. Uh, I think that was the title of the work. And they referred to it, but of course, I, I didn't know what it looked like. So I was, I was Looking through, I, I was just going to make up something, but I was looking through some other reference material for another picture I was to do part of this same project and just chanced upon a photo of this very image that was in a, a church uh, in the rocks in Sydney. Uh, fortuitously, I, I discovered this. So I was then able to incorporate that. And of course, I adjusted the angles mm. of, of, the, of the drawing in Photoshop uh, in order to, to match the, the angles there. But one really interesting thing, Jeff, uh, which struck me as being kind of, I suppose, providential, uh, where the in each of the paintings, I, I, the large paintings I did for that project, I included a cross. Um, in this case, there's a crucifix on the table, and in that, uh, actually, in the the one on the left, it's Our Lady of the Southern Cross. So the Southern Cross in the top right is is the cross. That's the, the the stellar constellation you can see in the top right. Oh, it took me a minute. Oh, so it's subtle. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So getting back to the other picture, where I placed that um, crucifix uh, wasn't in any way intended to line up with the golden ratio. But when I looked at it later, again in Photoshop, just looking at looking at it through a um, a filter, it, it it was actually on the golden ratio. I just thought, wow, that's, you know, it was being given prominence in a way that happened despite, you know, anything I was orchestrating, which I, I found quite uh, So you're talking from top inspiring. to bottom. You're talking top to bottom, not left to right. 
Yeah. Okay. Oh, indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm yeah. like, no, it's not. <laughs> it took me a minute. No, 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 I no, see no. it. I see it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't explain. I didn't explain. Yeah. That. Okay. Yeah. So um, his head. In, in fact, his I think from memory, right it was actually. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I may have this wrong because it was a long time ago that I actually noticed this. I think it may actually have been where the where the cross beams, in fact, cross was where it was. I, I just remember thinking at the time that that's amazing that that should have happened. Yeah, it is, you know, but I've had a conversation about this with many artists and I often wonder, I don't know if you're a religious person, but a lot of people think that there's mm. something divine about these proportions, right? I mean, that goes way back. Oh, it did. Right. Yeah. And, and you have to ask yourself, okay, if there is something divine about this, then uh, when we, maybe we don't accidentally come up with these things, maybe we're instinctually mm. drawn to these proportions. So even though you weren't looking for yeah. this, perhaps you instinctually put it there because it's what felt right. And then you, mm -hmm. and then you discover, well, of course it felt right. It was the, these proportions, you know, the mm. golden mean. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And as the, the Greeks described it as the divine proportion, because they could, they, believe that uh, whatever notion they had of God or the gods in their vocabulary, that they had infused nature with that proportion. And you, when you become aware of it, you can see it, you know, in, in your your arm, you know, yeah. everything's divided up according to that ratio. And um, you see it throughout nature. That You were talking about the spiral before and the way certain uh, shells are constructed along those lines it's right and you're it's quite extraordinary and, yeah it yeah is extraordinary. and what but what's really interesting it, it has a math this is my maths geek coming back um uh, it has a mathematical a very simple mathematical equation that determines what that proportion is but it also has a, a very strong aesthetic uh effect so it, as you were saying before it's it's the most pleasing place visually pleasing place to to uh locate an important element within the picture plane so i remember looking at the work of uh salvador dali the sacrament of the last supper and he used that right throughout that picture in, in all kinds of ways you know the position of the heads of the apostles and other things like that uh turner the the british uh landscape uh, seascape painter whose work seems so kind of uh you know alive and all over the place that you'd hardly imagine that he, he he could have used something like the golden ratio as a design principle. But if you actually measure up some of his, his works, uh, that's exactly what he's done. And and where the the locomotive coming through the viaduct over, over the horizon sits on the picture plane happens to coincide with the golden ratio. And maybe it was just um, his own aesthetic sense that he felt like that was the right spot to do it, or maybe like Salvador Dali, he did it deliberately. I, I don't know, but yeah, I certainly know that when I'm doing it, I often do it deliberately. Yeah, uh, but I guess not always. Yeah, not always. Not not this time, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, can you show us on some of your other pieces where you've used, where and how you've used the golden ratio? Oh yes. Um, now, if you go into the portrait gallery, the second okay. from the top. 
This episode is brought to you in part by Rosemary Brushes. If you're one of my listeners who's a professional artist, you're already using Rosemary Brushes. But for the rest of you, come on. Take your work a little more seriously. Stop buying the other brands. It's just not worth it. Every now and then you may get lucky and buy a good brush from another brand, but use the brand that professionals like myself are using. Go to rosemaryandco.com, link in the description or the show notes, and get yourself some quality brushes before your next painting. Okay, so in this portrait, which was, uh, I think it was the first portrait I had as a finalist in the Archibald Prize, and it won the Packing Room Prize as well. That's a portrait of a, of a radio broadcaster who at the time was very, very, he was probably the most um, well-known and successful Australian radio broadcaster. Um, and in that composition, I used the golden ratio, golden mean, uh, repeatedly as a way of placing elements into the picture. So, for example, if you look at, um, on the top left-hand side, there's a like a, a, a gilt screen um, with the black frame. Yeah, that's right. Now, the right-hand frame edge, just to your right of, of your cursor, no, back, 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 back. Yeah, yeah. That's right it, here. just there. That's on the golden ratio ah. with respect to the interval left to right. And then if you move over to the next line, the right, the left, that's it, the left-hand edge of that column likewise, mm -hmm. which then goes down to almost marry up. I didn't marry it up exactly because it would have looked too, um, it wouldn't have looked right. But the, the fold in the uh, the chair just near where your cursor is is roughly associated with that. And if you go all the way down to the bottom, uh, if yeah, see that line that demarks the shadow and the lit side of his mm -hmm. lower leg, mm -hmm. that coincides with the golden ratio as well. So, and then in the other dimension going up up and down on the far left, going back, back to that gilt. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so go down from there. Go down. Keep going. Right there. Oh, back up. That guy, this, up. this edge here. Up, up, up. That, that edge there, yeah. Yeah, this edge here. Okay. And, you, and you'll notice it coincides with the top of his left hand on the edge of the Right, right. Chair. Okay. Interesting. At that stage, I think I'd only just heard about I mean, I, I was vaguely aware of it, but I'd only just realized that a lot of artists use that design principle when composing their pictures. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a go at that. So how and, important um, do you think precision in using the formula is in other words could could it be just a loose thirds rule uh i would say in my experience i've tried to use that rule of thirds and it never really works for me but when i use the golden ratio it, it feels right and mm -hmm. and the one third is almost it's closer it's close to the golden ratio but it's not quite close enough and it there's a bit of a tension there you know, it's a little bit like the um, that famous fresco of um, Michelangelo's, the creation of Adam, and the fingers are just a little bit apart. If they were touching, there wouldn't be the same tension that there is when there's a slight gap. Uh, obviously, in his case, I'm sure it was done deliberately to highlight that um, connection between God and Adam. But uh, in my experience, um, I found that using the golden ratio is, is better. And I actually measure it up precisely. Um, so that if something in my composition coincides with it, then I'll run with it. But if something in the in the composition is just a little bit off, 
then I'll move it entirely. That's not just a bit off, it's way off. Or, or, really? or spot on, either way. Yeah. So you either approach it, you either want to nail the golden, golden ratio or you want to avoid it mm. altogether. Yeah. So yeah. precision is really important then. Yeah, and, and look, maybe this is my math background coming out, my geekiness from uh, Oh, that's right, days. math, right, oh. yeah. Tell me about your work habits, your, you know, your studio, your day-to-day. -day. What is the day of a portrait artist like yourself like? Um, if my, years and years ago, I remember my dad saying to me, he worked as an engineer for, for most of his life. And he was a very, uh, very organized, very thorough, attention to detail. And he used to look at the, my comparatively chaotic uh, life in many respects, which I won't go into. <laughs> but certainly in, in the case of, of my work as a painter, I would, um, he said, you need, you need time management, Paul. You need someone to organize you. In fact, even my sister the other day said to me, you need a manager because I tend to work in fits and starts. When I'm working on a, when I'm starting out a, a painting, say a portrait, I'll spend maybe 12, 15 hours pretty much continuously with breaks along the way for meals, et cetera, um, working on the head because I usually start with that because I feel if I can make that work, it gives me the confidence to proceed and, and, and complete the rest of the composition um, with, with some level of, uh, hopefully some level of, um, of success because, as I say, I feel confident at that stage. But until I get to that point, uh, I'll keep working on the head, and I only like to work on it while it's while the paint is is fresh and pliable. As soon as it starts to get tacky, and, it, and starts parts of it start to dry, uh, for me it's too late. Uh, uh, so if 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 at the end of that twelve hour uh, time slot, I'm not happy with the, with what I've produced. I'll literally scrape it off, <laughs> use a yeah. rag to rub it off. So you're start totally again about when into wet. It's just it's got to be done while it's wet, or it's you're it's toast. in in those early stages. I, I try as I may to paint entirely a la prima, but but I've never been able to. Mm -hmm. In other words, I, I always feel I need to come back and uh, tweak various things in the composition. Uh, do you make an effort it, to make your second layer look a la prima by using oiling out techniques and so on? Or do, do you yeah, I, or do you sort of um, embrace that layered look? I, I try to avoid it looking layered. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was an expression that Whistler used that it should all be of one skin mm. so that the, the picture plane doesn't look like you've... Um, come back and, and amended something that was wrong. So sometimes what that means, for example, I most recently, or not most recently, but last year uh, in the Archibald competition, I had a portrait of Hugh Jackman, the actor, giant actor, and his wife, Deborah Lee Furness. And um, so I went over and spent a, a couple of days with them at their apartment in New York and took a whole lot of photographs and That's worked out compositions. Deal. That's awesome. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I, I felt like I was, the, you know, in in the company of royalty. That, and, and they're so lovely and so down to earth. It, you know, it was just a wonderful experience. Um, but when I came back, I had literally a month before the deadline for the Archibald entries would come and go. 
And I didn't want to disappoint them or myself by not having it ready in time. So I was working day and night to get this painting finished. And there was something about Deb's face that I'd painted that was bugging me right from the word go, but I just put it aside and, and just continued to, to work on the other parts of the painting. And the deadline for the entries was a Friday afternoon at four o'clock, I think. On the Thursday night, the day before, the night before, I was looking again at the painting, which I, I felt was basically completed by that stage. And I looked at her face and I thought, I can't submit this painting the way it is. I, I'm just not happy with how I've painted her face. And I think what I had originally, I had her mouth slightly open, her lips were slightly open, uh, and you could see just a hint of her teeth. And I didn't like the expression. Uh, I, did, I didn't like the way I painted it. So I looked back through all my reference sources and, and the drawings and things that I'd done, and I thought it's more indicative of who she is, I think, from what I remember of being with them, and also what was in the photographs, to have her, her lips closed. But if you close someone's jaw when it's slightly open and then bring it up to close it, everything changes. You know, right. the, the position of the bottom of the jaw changes, the, the muscles that hold the jaw in place, uh, which are all over the place, they all change. The, the nose, everything changed. So basically I repainted the head that night over. I was also conscious that if I don't repaint it all in the one skin, so to speak, so it all looks other prima, then it's going to look like I've, uh, I've it's going to look like I've made a poor effort to amend something that was wrong. And because the heads are the focal points, I, I couldn't afford to let that happen. So I repainted the whole head and I was hoping and praying that by, Daybreak, I would be happy with the result, and thank goodness stressful. I, I was. So, but it was it was ridiculously stressful. But I just felt I had to do it. You know, I, I felt compelled to do it, and and I'm glad I did. And and the final result was better. Although the truth of the matter is, if I had another week, I'd probably still have been working on it to uh, in, improve things further. If I, you know, if I'd have had the time. Do you work on a smooth canvas? So the reason I ask is because if you, in the, this, you know, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but if there were a case where you come back days later before you realize you screwed up ahead and it's dry, mm. can you sand mm. it down to a smooth surface again? Or now you've oh, got a smooth uh, surface on a textured canvas, so it's never going to look right. Are you following me? Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, the, 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 this disparity in the texture of of the surface of the paint, right? Which is particularly evident if the light's shining on it, and and you and you see a little more. Of the right, texture you got a smooth face, as a result. and then yeah. you got a textured painting so, behind it. Yeah. yeah, so I don't, I don't generally sand things back. Uh, I I have done that in the past, and I found that very issue with with doing that. So I don't do that anymore. Okay. Uh, so you got to discover I, it when it's I, wet or you're toast. Uh, yes and no. What I would do if, if I had the head dry, um, usually it's not entirely dry. And I, I'm usually able to make that judgment call before I get too far down the path. Uh, but if it is dry, I will rotate the canvas 180 degrees and then use the blank canvas, at the, which was at the bottom, is now at the top to repaint the head. Uh. And often when I'm, when I'm painting a head, uh, and I've scraped it off and I've come back the next day, done the same thing again for the next 10, 12 hours. Uh, I'm still not happy with it. I, I rub it out again. 
I remember I remember a particular example of when I painted. Um, well, in this instance, it was a, it was a chap who was the chairman of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the government uh, <clears throat> media outlet, television, radio, etc. So it's quite a big thing uh, in Australia, and I painted his head initially, which is what I always start with. I wasn't happy with it, so I rubbed it out, scraped it off, and then the next day tried it again. The next day I was also unhappy with it, and this happened three or four days in a row. I think I got to about the fourth or fifth version, and by that stage I didn't know whether it was good, bad, or otherwise. I'd lost all objectivity, <laughs> and I thought, look, maybe this is just me being overthinking this and I'm being too fussy, and maybe it's not bad, and maybe I'm just... I should just leave it. So, because it, it didn't look too bad, but I just, I wasn't entirely satisfied. So I left it in case I couldn't do any better, rotated the canvas 180 degrees and used the, the, the blank canvas that was now in front of me, uh, which previously had been at the bottom of the canvas to repaint his head. Uh, and I've done that a number of times, actually, with various portraits. Um, and when that final version if it does look better some usually it does and i'll just go with that and then just continue to paint i'll just paint over whatever was at the head at the bottom you know the, the previous versions and if there's any um if there's any uh uh paint which hasn't completely dried on that former version i'll do my best to rub it out but i, I don't sand it back because that does create a change in texture and, and usually what I find, particularly if I have made changes, and you, this is one of the things I love about work of the many of the old masters, people like Velasquez, you, you look at his work and you can see where the arm that he's painted had been moved from its original position and you can see the kind of ridges mm -hmm. uh, of paint where he'd painted the arm previously. And I think that, again, adds charm uh, as long as it's, as long as that ridge doesn't kind of coincide with the eye or you know, some important feature that you don't want to have those sort of distractions near. Um, but in, in the right location, uh, it, it can be an advantage. So I, I just would paint over the remnants of the previous head and just continue along that path. Okay. So uh, what about your studio habits as far as from day to day? I mean, is it like a full-time job for you? Is it seven days yeah. a week five days a week oh uh, well in, when i was painting hugh and deb it was eight days a week 28 hours a day <laughs> i didn't do much sleeping or much eating that month but that was obviously uh an unusual situation i couldn't survive if i had to do that all the time right a little bit like the advertising industry the, the dead you ask when is the deadline for this illustration and their answer is invariably yesterday yeah, yeah. And you, you're behind the eight ball right from the start. So, uh, which is one of the reasons I decided to move back into fine art and away from that commercial, uh, because I, the, the deadlines were, were killing me. So what I would normally do, I would still spend uh, 10, 12, maybe up to 15, maybe 15, maybe not 15, but certainly in that ballpark, a whole day and, and most of the night working, working on a particular, working on the head, which is the start for any particular painting. And once I've done that, once I've got to the point where I've satisfied that the head is, uh, is working well enough to continue with the rest of the painting, then I, I almost feel a little bit of, uh, I feel somewhat relieved 
and I almost feel like I've got time up my, my sleeve now and I can kind of take my time, which is a dangerous thing for me because it's very easy to become distracted with other things in life and uh, mm-hmm. to procrastinate. But I, when I'm battling things like procrastination, which I think many people uh, struggle with, I, I know I do, um, I find that when I just start painting, even though I don't feel like it oftentimes, if I just start, then I get into the, I, I start rolling with it and it starts to invigorate me and I, and I, then I'm enjoying the process and I'll just keep painting and, mm-hmm. you know, as long as I'm in the zone or as long as I'm able to stand up, which uh, at three o'clock in the morning is, is often questionable. Uh, so yeah. I really need to have more rigorous scheduled work habits and a lot of friends of mine suggest that to me and I agree. I just find it very hard to achieve. Uh, yeah, I'm the same way. But I also agree with what you said about just getting started. That's the hardest part. Once you do, the momentum yeah. just sort of builds. It's almost like yeah. going, it's it's like, I like to exercise. I don't, I actually hate to exercise. And this is the point, but I do mm. exercise. And yeah. it's like, just getting to the gym is often the hardest part. Then once you're there, you yeah. got nothing else to do. You might as well just exercise. And the canvas sort That's of feels true. like that. Just getting to the canvas, just putting the first mm. few strokes down is the hardest part. And then, yeah. then you start rolling. Yeah. And next thing you know, eight hours yeah. goes by, or in your case, 15 hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but one other reason I asked that is because I've done the gallery thing. I've done the commission portrait thing. And one of the challenges that I think portrait painters have, and I wonder what your perspective is on this is that you get to a point where if you take every job, you're so far out that Mm. people aren't willing to wait anymore, but then you don't want to miss opportunities. So, I mean, have you experienced this where you just feel like, should I, maybe I need to stop taking work, but I don't want to stop taking work. I'm an artist for crying out loud. You don't turn away work. Mm. You know, have you ever dealt with that conflict? Yes. And how do and you deal with it? One, one, one way to approach it, I remember a businessman was telling me this one time, it, it, it's the supply and demand uh, curve. So if you're in greater demand than you can supply to the market, then it's probably time to put your prices up. And if that then uh, removes some of the potential clientele, uh, then you're probably making up for that by slightly higher prices it's 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 tricky though you 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 can't you don't want to be greedy and you don't want to jump too soon because you might blow the whole thing out of the water but that's one thing i I was told i should think about doing uh the the other thing um uh in 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 terms of uh the workload because it is very stressful I, i know at one point i had probably a year or two's worth of work in front of me. And I don't like to disappoint people. I don't like to have clients that are unhappy with what I'm doing um, or the, the lack of timeliness in that process. Uh, it's it's really tricky. And you don't want to rush the process either because, you know, as they said in Toy Story, you can't rush art. You know, if you try to, you'll end up producing a less than ideal result, which you know that, you're not going to be happy with, and chances are the client right. won't be happy with. So it, it's a really tricky balance, but that, that's probably the way I would look at uh, trying to resolve the problem. 
Ironically, one of the benefits of COVID was that there were fewer clients commissioning portraits. So I was able to catch up on my backlog huh. uh, and, and feel quite relieved. But of course, initially feeling relieved, that uh, initial feeling is often then replaced with the stress and, and anxiety associated with, you know, where's my next job coming from? Right. When you're working freelance, working for yourself, uh, it's a it's a precarious way to, to make a living. And I, I've been really, I've, I've been blessed over the years to have had pretty much a continuous flow of work. So I, I've, I've been very fortunate in that way, even during the tough times. In fact, during the global financial crisis, so-called that we had, you know, back, what was it, 15 years ago, whenever it was, when a lot of people I knew, a lot of people in the portrait field, um, some very, very good artists, very highly regarded, very talented, very um, successful, were really struggling to make a living, a little bit like COVID, because uh, at the end of the day, for the most part, a portrait is something you don't need mm -hmm. in the way that you need food, medicine, those sorts of things. So it's one of the first things that people will um, eliminate from their, uh, from what they're wanting to um, invest in. And the, the net result is you're out of work pretty much. So during that time, that's when I had that project, that enormous marathon of a project to paint those pictures for the Domus Australia Chapel. Wow. And that saw me right through that period. So I was able to put bread on the table for the, for the family. What and, a blessing. Uh, it really was. It really was in, in so many ways. Yeah. You know, during that time, it, it was 2008, so you nailed it 15 years ago. Mm. But yeah. um, I literally, weeks before that crash, I decided to go on a two or three year sabbatical. In other words, oh, wow. I decided to live on savings. I had saved money from selling paintings, mm. and I decided I'm going to take the next two or three years and get out of the market, not sell paintings, and just re teach myself how to paint differently, a, mm -hmm. a way that I mm -hmm. wanted to paint in the future. Yeah. And so it was still stressful because I didn't know how long it would last, whatever, but yeah. but I'd already decided I didn't need to make money or I didn't want to make money anyway. I want, didn't want to sell painting. So it's a different kind mm. of blessing, but man, the timing mm. was like <laughs> perfect. perfect. Yeah, and by yeah. the time I came out of the sabbatical, the the economy was starting to improve and things were fine, but yeah thank goodness for those uh tender mercies you know yeah so amen yeah so this is this your studio behind you this is my temporary studio when i i moved here my daughter was 16 um when we moved here as a family so back then this was and i live on five acres in the outer outskirts of sydney rural outskirts of sydney Part of the reason for choosing a block like that was so that I would have plenty of space to build a studio just as I would want it uh, to look, you know, facing the right way, the right aspect, you know, large enough that it was going to suit my purposes uh, as, a, as a place to paint and maybe to give workshops to teach. Um, but in the interim, I thought maybe for a year or two, you know, mm -hmm. How naive was I? It's, I've, I've been in this, working in this place here that you can see behind me for the last, well, 16 years since since we moved here. But 
along those along that time, I've also been working on this uh, studio at the back, which is getting closer to com to completion. And I'm oh, you must be happen, dying uh, to move into it. Oh, totally. Okay, so can we yeah. see it? Is it possible to see it? Yeah. Okay. Of awesome. I gotta see so, this. I'm just gonna. This is exciting for me because I'm literally constantly looking for land. My dream is to build a studio someday. <laughs> But I, I live in the oh, city. Wow. I live in the city. There's no land. My my house pretty much <laughs> covers my entire property. Yeah, I, I know that. I know the feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's the it's the middle of winter here in Sydney, Australia, and the sun is shining. I'm wearing a t-shirt. This is your winter. Um, there are leaves on the trees. This is this is. Oh, in, indeed. Well, actually, some trees. Uh, around here are deciduous and some are evergreen. But, oh. um, so it doesn't but get yes, very cold where point. you live? No. Well, some seasons it gets colder than others. But as you can see right now, it's, it's actually gorgeous weather. I could sit out here in the sun soaking in these rays, probably not get sunburnt with my pasty white skin, um, <laughs> and it would just be lovely. So we're, we're approaching... Wow, look at that wall of glass. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That and do you is notice that unbelievable. Do you notice that the building is casting a shadow? The reason that the shadow is where it is is because the large window, uh, which you can see, yep, there we see behind it right me, behind you. Which yep. is which is nine meters high. It's it's off the floor. It's, it's an enormous window. And the, and the reason it's facing south uh, is in order to get the indirect light that a window facing north in the northern hemisphere would get. And in the southern hemisphere, the sun is all, it rises in the east, of course, sets in the west, but it's always on the northern half of the sky. And the, in the northern hemisphere, of course, it's always in the southern half of the sky. So in the Northern Hemisphere, in New York or in Europe, the ideal studio aspect would be uh, a north light because that the light, the sun never shines through uh, because it's never on the northern half of the sky. For me, in the Southern Hemisphere, the sun is never on the southern half of the sky. It's only ever on the northern half. So if I want that indirect ambient unchanging or relatively unchanging light, then I have the window as you can see here. Oh my gosh, my... that is a beautiful studio. I'm so envious. <laughs> so that you. faces south. Correct. Instead of north. And it's so funny you bring this yeah. up because I had a podcast with Carlo Russo, who lives in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> obviously yeah. on the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, mm. we, I don't remember how it came up, but all of a sudden it occurred to us, wait a minute, what do Australians do? <laughs> and then we, we speculated that it would of course you'd have to flip the window to the opposite direction and we were right yeah. but the other thing we discovered is on the equator you're kind of screwed because the sun oh, yeah. sort of just goes a little bit to the north a little bit to the south a little bit yeah. to the north a little bit to the south yeah so you just want awnings in the uh in on the <laughs> equator apparently <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah. And, and another, another interesting thing, I, I hope this is, is this too echoey when I'm inside here? No, it's great. Oh, okay, good. Um, the other thing that I, I perhaps should mention, because I did have the luxury of being able to orientate this building that I had built um, from scratch, 
uh, exactly where I wanted it. That southern window that we we're just talking about is in fact not due south. Uh, I tend to do, I feel like my best work, or at least I'm most inclined to work later in the day, in the afternoon, mm -hmm. as opposed to first thing in the morning. And therefore, what I want to avoid is the late afternoon sun shining through that window, coming down and, and hitting the wall that's uh, behind it, and then burning out the whole of the, of the room so that I, I can't work here. The light, the light is just too strong. So you're trying so to avoid that I... late evening skim light that's going to skim across those yeah. windows, right? Well, in Sydney, we get in the summertime, the, the sunlight from say about three, four o'clock. Uh, so it's still reasonably high in the sky is way south of due west. Uh, so it's, it's not just at the very end of the evening when the sun is about to set. Wait, how it's close are you to the poles? How long are your days in the midsummer in, at, at summer equinox? Uh, well, at the, um, at, at the peak of summer when the sun is at its, uh, we're, at the peak of summer when the sun is out for the longest, it will, uh, probably set about maybe 8.30. Oh, so it's in about the, evening, the same as maybe not where we are. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure why, why it is the case. I mean, if you look out through the window, you can see it's fairly level land. Yeah. And there's no, there's no buildings there which are going to obscure um, the sun. I mean, there's some trees, but, you know, not much more than that. Yeah. But, I, yeah, I guess the thing that's throwing me off is that slight angle that you have to get. I'll have to pay attention I haven't, mm. I haven't noticed the sun going beyond due west when it sets here in Utah. And oh, really? And I haven't noticed it, but it doesn't mean I, it's not happening. Mm. I don't know. I, th I think you'll find it. I would think that you would find it. You would find that it does. Yeah. So um, if you were a morning because person, because the days are long. If you were a morning person, you'd flip it. You'd go thirteen degrees yeah. in the other direction. Yeah. Okay, that's smart. Yeah, man. One another benefit of building your own space. And how high are those ceilings? One of the reasons people said to me, why have you got such a, a tall window? This is, at this point here, the window is about nine meters high. Oh my, or 27 feet. Holy cow. Yeah. It's, in, it's like that a three-story building. Tall. And, and you'll probably think, or probably ask me why I have it so tall. But if you look at that wall at the back, ignoring for a moment that the, the light coming through on the other side. Yeah. You notice how the light is very even and it really comes all the way over to here. It's slightly darker on that side, the wall, than, than over here. Right, but right. Not by not by that much. And so if you look at the floor, it's illuminated almost equally all the way across. And so what I was thinking is, uh, if I am conducting classes down here, I've got a whole lot of students and a couple of models set up that they're working from. Uh, by having such a high window, it means that the whole studio space here is usable. There, there are no areas where there's not really good daylight. Yeah. That was the rationale for me. It just means that the whole space is more usable. But what I plan to do is to put, um, when I can afford to do so, is to put windows, sorry, to put, um, uh, some kind of a screen curtain arrangement over these big windows 
in order to be able to mould the lot. So I may not want it to be so high, or I may not want it to be so wide. I may want a narrow beam of light, you know, more of a, a Rembrandt-type light. Um, and the narrower the light source, the sharper the shadows are going to be, which is one of the reasons why when using um, drove photography, you would use a softbox or an umbrella because it broadens the effective right, light source. Right. So when you have a window this big, it's an extraordinarily broad source. And if you look, for example, <laughs> if you look at this, uh, this garbage bin, see the shadow it's casting? Yeah, it's completely it's so, soft. It can't even hardly see it. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, it's so broad. It, it kind of seems to come from here to here. Yeah. Almost in an arc, like a, a pizza piece. That is and strongest soft. Right, right here. Wow. Yeah. So, which is great if you're simply painting and uh, and don't want uh, to be affected by the light on your canvas. It's a great way to see the canvas in a totally uh, objective way because you have no, uh, um, you don't have the light playing tricks and producing shadows the way it would normally. But if I'm painting somebody from life and I have them sitting there and I, and I do want uh, light and shade, then yes, just simply um, reducing the width of that window would have that effect. That's going to be amazing. Can we have you back on when the studio's finished and get a tour? Oh yeah, that would. Be I'm cool. hoping it'll be sometime during my lifetime. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I hope so. That'd be a waste. You got to use this thing. It is. I know. It's inspiring. I know. It's inspiring. I thank you. I can't. I can't wait to. Well, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but. If it does, I can't wait to have that opportunity to build a studio. Okay, so now that we're back in your old studio, you had mentioned earlier that you went to New York to see that exhibit because you had to be there for mm -hmm. a commission. How does an Australian mm -hmm. portrait painter end up in New York City for a portrait commission? That's a very good question. Um, I don't have a good answer as to why I was selected to do any of these portraits in America. I'm just glad that I have been. Um, America, in many ways, to me, is almost a second home. I've got so many friends there. I so enjoy the time I spend there, and I love working with the people. I always feel, when I come home after having spent time in the States, I always feel energized, and, you know, I can take on the world. That, that That's the kind of uh, feeling I, I take away from uh, my trips to the States because, that, you know, Americans are so positive, such a can-do attitude to, to things in life. It's, I find it quite inspiring, actually. Um, but the first uh, – so, so the short answer is I don't know why they, they've selected me. I don't know why Chris Christie asked me to paint his portrait when there were so many great uh, local artists to um, who he could have chosen. But, I you know, I felt like I had a rapport with him and, and – uh, uh, Anyway, he, he, he selected me to paint him, and I was, um, you know, very grateful for that. I've been doing Jeff's online mentorship program for about a year now, and it is awesome. Everything is online, super streamlined. If you can be there, I mean, you have the ability to talk to him once a week, and he can review your work and help you. If you can't be there, it's pre-recorded. You can go back and even re-watch things if you miss something during class or couldn't be there. So the online portion of it is almost better than real life because you can always go back to it, which is awesome. The demos are recorded. 
it's just like all available whenever you need it. And I'm a stay-at-home mom of four and my time is limited and it's also very interrupted. And so to be able to go back has been clutch for me. And you get to work with Jeff Hine, who's awesome. He's tough. The assignments are simple, but difficult. And they're difficult to make us all better. And he's able to give us these assignments, coach us through it, help us stay excited to progress. And so it's just been a great experience. I am so grateful that he has been willing to take time away from his own art to offer all of us to have it. So if you're thinking about doing it, it's amazing. If you're interested in learning more about how you could study with me, either online or in person, check out Heinatelier.com. That's H-E-I-N-A-T-E-L-I-E-R.com. An interesting sidebar is the story of how I first, or the story of my first portrait commission in New York. It was for Columbia University, and I was asked to paint the, uh, the chairman, uh, Steve Friedman at the time, and the um, then president, Dr. George Rupp. And both of these gentlemen independently had selected from uh, work that they looked at at various artists. They both selected me to paint these their official portraits for Columbia University. This was the first job and first commission through uh, Portraits Inc. back in those days when they were in New York. And it was so Portraits really... Inc., just to be clear, Portraits Inc., isn't that a website that promotes portrait painters? Uh, no, Portraits Incorporated, Portraits Inc., has been running since the 1940s oh. as a portrait agency. So they'll get work uh, for artists. They were for many years based in New York on uh, on Park Avenue, I think, from memory, up around the 80-something street, so not far from the Met in that precinct. Mm. Um, and they had a lovely shop front and they had portraits in there of various artists that they represented, uh, you know, samples of their, their work. It was really quite, quite a magical... Uh, experience for someone like me to walk in there and meet these people and to realize that there was a there were agents who actually promote this work and, and get work for artists who uh, specialize in portraiture. So that's how people like Chris uh, Christie hear about someone like yourself is yeah, by seeing exactly. you through, through an, Portraits Inc. Yes. Okay. That's right. Okay. So this first commission, uh, Jeff, which was to paint these two uh, gentlemen from Columbia University. And because it was my first commission for this agency that was this premier agency in New York, I was, to say I was nervous would be a gross understatement. Uh, and I wanted to make sure I put, I got everything right, put my foot uh, forward uh, without stumbling. Mm -hmm. So I flew from Sydney to Los Angeles and I thought I'll stay overnight in Los Angeles to get some sleep because I want to arrive bright eyed and bushy tailed in New York. The next day so I, I did that and in my hotel room as i was unpacking um there was an earthquake it must have been five or six on the richter scale it was quite significant wow and for someone who who'd grown up in australia where we don't have earthquakes not to speak of we're not on a tectonic plate divide like los angeles is and uh it was really scary i i, I was so jet lagged that I, I had this thought that i'm still in the back of the aircraft you know, shaking around the way, you know, with turbulence the way they sometimes do. 
and I could only ever afford to, to be in cattle class at the back. So it was a familiar feeling. But by the time I realized that I was on terra firma and it shouldn't be doing this, mercifully it stopped. And then on the TV that I had running in the, in the background, they reported that there was this earthquake in Los Angeles. So the next morning, I was very glad to be leaving Seismic LA to fly over yeah, to uh, put that behind me and focus on this on this important com two commissions. So on the flight over, um, uh, there was congestion at JFK apparently and bad weather, uh, and we were doing circles in the sky. It should have been a four and a half hour flight on the seven four seven. It ended up being almost double that length of time, oh, probably seven brutal. hours at least, maybe closer to eight. And the, the captain of the aircraft said at one point, because people were just walking around thinking, you know, what on earth is going on here? He said, uh, I think we have enough fuel to land, but keep your fingers crossed. And I thought, I'm not being paid to worry. That's your job, mate. You know, don't, don't, we don't need to know that. Anyway, we did finally land safely, and I felt like it's time to get out and kiss the tarmac. Thank God that we, um, that we made it. Uh, so I, I thought, okay, I'll put all those dramas behind me, the, the earthquake, the, you know, the plane nearly running out of fuel, and focus on this job at hand. So the next morning I woke up, beautiful, sunny, balmy, uh, I guess it would be um, a spring day. I'm trying to think what, it would, what time of year it was. Anyway, um, it was a beautiful day, and I was getting dressed, ready for this first uh, appointment that I had up at Columbia, up, up um, uh, uptown. Um, and I was watching, I, again, I had the TV in the background. I was watching out of the corner of my eye what was going on. And this plane flew into a building, and I thought, what on earth? I thought, you know. Wait, you were there for that? A, it was September 11, 2001. I was right in Midtown. When after an earthquake, this, after almost crashing in a plane, yeah, then you're yeah. here for 9-11. Yes, yes. And I thought, what, what else can possibly happen? And then they started talking about anthrax and oh the idea that- Oh my gosh. Uh, I was watching, because I was near Fifth Avenue and I was watching, in fact, I think the hotel I was in was either on or very close to Fifth Avenue. And I, people were just walking uh, it was like a war zone, walking uh, in a shocked state of mind, it would appear, many of them covered in white dust, walk, walking north along the street, uh, away from, uh, you know, the, the, the southern part of Manhattan. And from 14th Street south, it was cordoned off, so you couldn't go there, you know, even if you had wanted to. Not that I wanted to, of course. Um, and I was just glad that the, uh, the work I was doing was... Um, and the meetings I had would be up, up uh, town, uh, on I think, hundred and something street in Manhattan, where Columbia's situated. And in retrospect, because Steve Friedman, who was like this at that time, Mr. Wall Street, you know, he, he was a high-powered uh, um, finance uh, guru who went on to be the chief economics advisor to George W. Bush in the White House shortly after his time as chairman of Columbia. He would have known countless people who were, who obviously didn't make it, sadly. Um, yet he was still able to sit for me, and I did a, a life uh, sketch of him and took photos. and uh, and And I think the the painting that I ended up creating from that session with him was probably one of the, the best 
I've done. Certainly at that time, it was a real, I really felt like I'd, I'd done a good job of that. Uh, and likewise, Dr. George Rupp, um, his portrait. So I really felt um, in retrospect that that was an enormous uh, graciousness on their part to, uh, with all that was going on and with the fact that they would have known people involved, the fact that they still sat for me was uh, quite remarkable. I'm surprised you could even hold a brush and you weren't just like shaking like a leaf at that point. <laughs> You'd been through so much crap. I, I was, I was shell shocked. I, I thought, honestly, I thought what else could possibly go wrong? You know, is this the beginning of world war three? I think at that stage, nobody knew what this all meant. Yeah. It was too early to know a little bit, a little bit like the way we're looking at artificial intelligence too, too early to know what the ramifications will be. Um, but as the day went on, of course, more news was coming out and, Back in those days, I was using uh, film as opposed to digital uh, camera technology. So I had to go and get my uh, film processed, and I went down. Most of the film labs were on about 22nd Street or thereabouts. <clears throat> so I remember going down downtown, dropping my film off, uh, and they were going to take two and a half hours or so to process the film. So while I had that time, I was just wandering around the city and every little precinct, every little, there's lots of little parks and little kind of public spaces in, in Manhattan. And people were congregating uh, in those places, I guess, searching for some kind of meaning to this terrible tragedy. And many of the people, this was the day it happened, many of the people were wearing little placards on their chest, um, maybe a photograph from a, a wedding uh, ceremony. You know, have you seen Joey, whoever it might be? Please call and then a cell phone number. And within mm. a few days, uh, the realization came that, you know, those people weren't, for the most part, weren't going to be found. It was, it was tragi a tragic, um, a tragic situation. Uh, and wow. I really felt for the, the people of New York uh, at that stage and, of, and through the years that have um, passed since, you know, how, how terrible it must have been to, um, have it on your home soil. I imagine what it would have been like if it had happened in Sydney uh, or close to where I lived. It, mm -hmm. it would have been so confronting. Yeah. Man, so any events on the way home or did you get home? Oh, you know what? The, the, nobody was flying for 10 days. I was there for 10 days. That was the, the job, uh, the, the allocation of time that we worked out before I came over. So um, 10 days after planes did begin to fly again. So the timing for me, selfishly speaking, the timing was perfect. Um, when our, so I caught a plane 10 days later to fly home. Usually at JFK or any big airport, the planes taxi out, then there's a long queue and a long wait before you finally become airborne. On that occasion, the plane was almost three quarter empty. Um, we got aboard, we flew, we, we taxied straight out and there was no stops and just take, we took off oh, immediately. Oh yeah, because no one's So flying. there was no delay. In terms of air travel, that was probably the safest time to, to travel, I imagine. Yeah. Because uh, everybody was, the heightened awareness was uh, palpable in the airports particularly, and particularly somewhere like New York, uh, you know, JFK in New York. Wow. Uh, so yeah, flying home was, was, uh, was easy. Crazy. Um, well, um, on that note, that was quite the story. <laughs> That was quite the story, but let's, uh, we're going to have to wrap up because it's been a couple hours. This interview has been amazing though. It's been great to talk to you, but let me ask you one more question. Likewise. If you could give one piece of advice that you wish you had 
to an aspiring artist, what would it be? I would say if you feel you have the ability, the, the, the talent, the natural talent, and you have the, um, you're willing to embrace what one of my art teachers described as an heroic lifestyle because it's such a precarious way to make a living as an artist. But if, if you have the passion to do that, <clears throat> you have the ability, the, the natural talent, you're prepared to put in the hours that it takes to hone your skills, and, and that's many, many hours, of course. Um, and and just and continue along that path and, and find that you may or may not be successful and that doesn't put you off. If you're able to do that, then I would say go for it. Um, one of the things I struggled with in the early part of my uh, career was knowing whether I could even make a living out of this. Uh, and there is in the art world, there are so many different ways that you can make a living as a, a person who's skilled um, in visual art. I mean, when I first got out of art school, I was working as an illustrator, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, that's one career pathway, uh, albeit, a, you know, pathway is probably a little bit uh, over-egging the, the um, description because it's, it's, there's no pathway. It's not like becoming an accountant or a doctor where there's a clear pathway. The, the one frustrating and difficult thing in the field of art is that you've got to forge your own pathway mm -hmm. and, and create it yourself. Um, but I also found along the way, uh, probably particularly in America, but even but in Australia too, that you would meet people along that path, along, along your journey, who would inspire you, who would tell you that, yes, you know, you've, you've got what it takes, you know, that they would encourage you to, to continue down that path, particularly when you yourself feel like it's a, it's a forlorn hope that you'll ever be successful or, or you're second guessing yourself the whole time about whether I'm good enough at it, whether, whether I have the, the talent, whether I'm just fooling myself. And, and, you know, the imposter syndrome, continues for 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 years I, I sometimes still feel that way you know mm -hmm. these people trust me to paint their portrait and uh they're, they're mad I, I don't know why they're doing it because i you know I, i'm not john singer sergeant i'm not one of these these greats and um i just feel very very blessed to to be in a position where people do want me to do this kind of work for them i don't know why they do but i'm, I'm just glad that they do well, so, yeah, I would. That would be my advice to to someone starting out. And also, just another thing, if I if I may elaborate, Jeff, um, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you a simple answer to this question. That's great. I would say spend as much time as you can in art museums, as well as getting uh, tuition from from artists whose work you admire, whose style is the kind of style that you would like to be, uh, you know, to learn about, because you'd like to perpetuate that that particular approach to visual art. But yeah, spending. A lot of time in galleries and museums is so instructive. It's no surprise to me that artists of the past used to take their pilgrimages, if you like, to the Prado in Spain and set their easels up beside Las Meninas. Las, Menin Las Meninas, sorry, I can't spit that one out, by Velasquez or any of his other works to create master copies um, because you, you learn so much doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. If you can't do a master copy, at least go in and, and observe the work. I remember one of my art school teachers used to say when we were doing landscape work, to really um, digest, to really take on board. He actually described it as making love to 
the landscape, to really know it, you have to paint it. And in painting it, you come to know it to a to a greater degree. It's a, mm-hmm. almost a more intimate process. And, and I'm sure that I've never done this, sadly. I, I must admit I've never done it. But I would love to have had the chance to sit an easel up beside Les Meninas uh, in the Prado and just paint a little section of what the Lesquith did because I'm sure I would have learned so much from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that's probably the most important thing, I, I would say, to someone who's aspiring to be a painter. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And it's been a huge honor to have you on my show. Thank you so much for doing it. Oh, Jeff, the honor's mine. And, and I was so, I was tickled pink when you, when we met up at the Portrait Society recently and you um, asked me if I would do this. It's, it's, uh, it's, I've really enjoyed it. It's been lovely to chat with you. Lovely to get to know you a bit, Jeff. And uh, I really admire your work and what you do and, and your approach to this whole thing is so, you know, you have such a conscientious, um, approach it's it's admirable so thank you i appreciate that thanks for tuning in to the undraped artist podcast if you enjoyed it subscribe and if you could leave a comment or review that really helps the channel please share the show with your friends and if you're feeling generous consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com thanks again for watching we'll see you next week